0: And now Sandra's gonna bring to us the reading. Over to you, Sandra. Good
1: Good morning. morning. Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 28. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom.
0: On the 17th of February 2003, I said goodbye to my two sons, Ross then aged 13 and Wesley aged 11, and then kissed and hugged Fiona and left the home, actually not far from here in Colchester. And it was dark as I climbed into my brother's car, but it was parked outside our house. And the mood in the car was very somber. Because I was going to war, I was going to the second Gulf War, to be precise. And saying goodbye to my boys and my wife Fiona was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Because while I was trying to encourage them and say I'm going to be okay, in my heart of hearts I knew that we were actually forecast going into a very difficult situation. At those, those times it was very definitely believed that Saddam Hussein had um, chemical weapons and we were expecting to suffer civilian, uh, serious casualties. And as a para-chaplain, I knew that there was no front line in the paras, you will, with your blokes, wherever they are, and you'll be in the thick of it. And in my deep heart, I felt that I may well be one of those casualties. Call it a sense of foreboding, call it a sense of fear, I don't know what it was. But trying to encourage them that I'm going to be okay, and feeling deep down in my heart that I wouldn't be, was a great challenge. And so I left them and got into my brother's car, and we drove into hydrobeg barracks that's now being pulled down up the, up the hill there. And we part next to a row of white coaches on the, we're going to go to H- Bryce Norton for the flight across to Kuwait. And I remember gets, before I got out of the car, I turned to Trevor and said, look, mate, if I don't come back, look after Fiona. Look after the boys. What was I doing? What madness is this? Why would I be exposing myself to that situation? Well, it was because God had called me as a minister many years before. And during my ministerial time of nine years into ministry, I felt very clearly God called me into the military as a chaplain. It was part of my responsibility as a Christian. I could not say no to the Lord Jesus. Why? Because He is the Lord Jesus. And when we bend the knee to Jesus as a Christian, when we call Him Lord, it's not simply a token, it is a title. And it means that we follow him. He does not follow us. And we go wherever he calls us to go. And we come to this passage here and we find that Jesus is showing us just what it means to be a Christian. And it all takes place in a place called Caesarea Philippi. There were two Caesareas in in, in the Middle East. um, Both named after Caesar. This Caesarea Philippi was named um, after Caesar Augustus. And when the land was given to Herod the Great, and so Herod the Great, in honour of the great Caesar, he actually built um, in, in Caesarea this huge temple that existed at the time of Jesus. This huge temple, and it was named after the divine Caesar, because the Romans believed their Caesars were divine. And so the whole town began to be called Caesarea, and then when Herod died, he was replaced um, by one of his sons called Philip, and Philip tried to um, stop, end the confusion between two Philips, two, two uh, Caesareas, so he named this Caesarea in honour of the Caesar at the time, but also in honour of himself because he called it Caesarea Philippi. It's my city as well as Caesar's city, if you like. But the significance of Caesarea Philippi was it wasn't just a place of political expediency. It had been for hundreds if not thousands of years a place of worship. It was like a Mecca of the ancient world. Caesar I Philippi uh, was actually originally in the Old Testament called Badgal or Balgad. And Balgad was a place where the, the god Baal was worshipped and had been worshipped for many, many centuries. And when the Greeks came into that area, the Hellenistic Greeks, they actually brought in their gods. And suddenly, this place was, the shrine here was named after the god Pan. And so it began to be called Paneus. In fact, today it's called Banius because in Arabic there's no P. So they can't say Paneus, they call it Banius. But actually, it's still named after the god Pan. And when you go to Caesarea Philippi if you go down to Banias itself, you'll find there is this huge cave, a gaping cave. And all around it there are um, uh, carvings in the wall. These little, these little um, uh, shelves have been carved in which the, the figurines of the gods were put. But in particular, this grotto was after the god Pan. He was a mischievous god in the Greek uh, pantheon. He was the one that used to scare the sheep. And so the shepherds would talk about their sheep being panicked because they'd been scared by the god Pan. He was a mischievous god who played a, a pipe. And people used to come from all around the ancient world to Caesarea Philippi to go into that cave and to lay, lay, lay um, tributes to the god in the hope that this god would um, hear their prayers and, and be well blessed towards them and help them out in their situations. It was a place that was of political expediency. It was a famous place of pilgrimage. It was a place in which worship had been taking place for thousands and thousands of years, originally to Canaanite gods and now to Greek gods. And it was in this place that Jesus asks a very significant question. He says to his disciples, he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And Peter turns to his Lord And he makes that profound statement, the first statement found of this nature in the Gospels. And he turns to Jesus and says, you are the Christ, or you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, in verse 16. And this was a revelation, and Jesus called it as such. He says to Simon, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but but by my Father in heaven. It was a divine revelation. But then Jesus said, but don't tell anyone else about it. He says, great Simon, but now shut up. Why? Because the disciples didn't understand what they were saying. They were calling Jesus the Christ. They were calling him the Messiah. But the popular understanding of Christ the Messiah had been corrupted by a view that wasn't from the Bible, but was from the local context. And they believed, the people of Israel at that time believed the Messiah was a political commander. He was an insurrectionist who would rebel against Rome and overthrow Rome and bring about freedom from the yoke of slavery that was suffering under the Roman Empire. There had been several messiahs before this time, the most famous being Judas Maccabeus. All of them have failed, but all of them have been insurrectionists, rebels, political commanders. And the Jews were longing for one who would come and who wouldn't fail, but actually would conquer Rome and bring them back into a Jewish renaissance. So so Jesus says, this is great, Peter. Yes, this is great, but don't tell anyone else. Because he knew that if they told everyone else, they would get the wrong picture of what he was about to to do. And so Jesus is literally now at a crossroads here in Caesarea Philippi, A road leading to a cross. And he began to tell them exactly what the Messiah would do. And we're told in code in Matthew's Gospel, verse 20, 21 in this chapter. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law. And then he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And the first thing we see in this passage is just this the divine solution. The divine solution. And the divine solution to the problem of humankind is not popular. It wasn't popular 2,000 years ago. It's even more unpopular in the 21st century because it's so countercultural. The idea of your son dying and you allowing your son to die is so countercultural. It speaks in some spheres of a kind of form of child abuse If you allow your son to die for other people. It's wonderful. I always love it the way the Lord works and I didn't prompt in any way uh, Lawrence to give that children's talk but it was a brilliant children's talk and it was so appropriate to this this message today. Exactly the same with Toby's song this week. That was Toby, Toby, he chose that song himself and it fits exactly with the theme we're talking about we're talking about God's solution and not man's solution you see someone had to die a price needed to be paid and that price revolved around a cross so the song we just sang just now the cross has said it all it is critical and key to who we are as Christians because on that cross your sin and my sin was paid and we are there, therefore have the ability to come into the presence of God because the barrier between us and God has been taken away. And that is crazy to the modern world. It was crazy 2,000 years ago. Jesus recognised this and so he began to teach the disciples, bit by bit, exactly what it meant. And this is the picture we find in the Old Testament. Time and time again in the book of Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in the Psalms, we find a picture of the Messiah Dying of being put onto a cross. Psalm 22 is a wonderful example of the cross of Christ, and, and, and you'll find there's so many prophecies of Jesus fulfilled in Psalm 22. And there's a reason for this teaching, it was because it was so, so anti and countercultural then as it is now But Peter suddenly goes from being hero to, to zero in a matter of minutes. One minute he's declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. Next minute, Jesus is turning around and telling him off and rebuking him. Because Peter says, Never, Lord. That's not the Messiah. That's not, you got it wrong, Jesus. That's not the way it should be. You shouldn't die. You don't have to suffer. This is, you, you, you know, you, too much sun. Peter didn't understand. was trying to explain to Jesus he had the wrong picture of the Messiah but Jesus made it quite clear that he must go this was not a choice this was the way the divine way of dealing with sin the route that God had chosen to deal with the problem of sin in mankind Jesus knew that going to that holy city would bring him into conflict with the Jewish ruling elite, the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He knew that the conflict would result in his death. And verse twenty-one is very specific. It says he must be killed. His death was the path, that he chosen to make to take as being the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one. And so it's quite understandable that in this passage you don't only have the divine solution; you have the human shout. We find it's it's remarkable in verse 22 it says that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and said never Lord this shall never happen to you Peter's trying to be kind to Jesus he's taking him aside rather than doing it in front of everyone never Lord this is not the way the Messiah is the path to glory and victory the Messiah is the one who's going to be the conqueror the Messiah is going to be one who's going to overcome He's got some of it right, he just doesn't understand what Jesus is going to overcome, what the Messiah is going to overcome. The Messiah was playing the long game, the bigger game. He wasn't fighting against Rome, he was fighting against sin and against man's eternal enemy, death. That was what Jesus had come to achieve, to bring in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of eternity and peace. Never, Lord, says Peter, never this should happen to you. And this shout is typical of Peter, and it's typical of all of us, and it's typical of the world. Never, Lord. Because we think in terms of humankind, we think in terms of our human thinking. We don't have a divine thought in the same way as God has. And so Jesus turns around to Peter and says those staggering words. He says in verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Merely human concerns. One minute Jesus is saying, Peter, you are Petros. Your name means rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And the next minute he's saying that you as a rock are causing me to stumble. You are a stumbling stone. You are in my way, Jesus. Uh, Peter. Get out my way and get behind me. Get behind me, Satan. The reason that Jesus is angry with Peter is because he was voicing the opinions not only of himself but of the other disciples. They all had this view of what the uh, the, the Christ or the Messiah was, was. But more than that, it was going to be tough enough for, for For Jesus to go to Jerusalem and to go through with what he'd been called to do, how much tougher if your followers are actually in your way as obstacles as opposed to following get behind me Satan, Jesus was saying you cannot be a disciple if you are in front of me get behind me get behind me And the biggest curse of the church in the 21st century is disciples continually want to walk in front of Jesus and tell Jesus of the way that he should be treating them and the way their life should go. Health and wealth. Being a Christian means I'm going to be showered with health and showered with wealth. That doesn't come from the pages of Scripture. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. Health and wealth is an attractive doctrine that misleads people God does heal I've known it in my own family and among people I've prayed for I've known miraculous healing I've seen miraculous healings of soldiers where God has answered prayer in incredible ways but it doesn't always happen because it's not our will that should be done it's God's will that should be done and the ultimate healing sometimes can be death because that will end all suffering and all disturbance and difficulty we don't know. There's no guarantees in the Bible. The only guarantee we have in this passage is that we follow Jesus and Jesus' way is the way of the cross. That is the view of the Messiah and of the Christian. Get behind me, Satan. Willie Barclay writes this, he says, Satan is any influence that seeks to make us turn back from the hard way that God has set before us. Satan is any power that seeks to make human desires take the place of the divine imperative. You can't follow Jesus if you're trying to be in front of him. When we get in front of Jesus, we become an obstacle. We become a stumbling stone to our own faith, to our own growth. You cannot learn from Jesus by trying to tell Jesus the way that your life will go. That leads to error and that leads to problems. Jesus is the way, of the truth, and the life, he says. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, verse 6. How can you follow Jesus to the Father if you're walking in front of him? You'll get lost. You'll end up in the wrong place. The role of a disciple is behind him and not in front of him. And when Jesus is saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan, he's saying, you do not stand in front of me. You follow me. That's the place of a disciple. Many years ago, and I read about this, I wrote about this recently in, in one of my thoughts for the week. Um, I was the, the main lead for the, um, the mountaineering club in, in London Bible College as it was then, now called London School of Theology. Um, and we used to organise twice a year, going, going over to do some climbing, and we went across to North Wales. And I had in my group, in my year in fact, a guy called Joachim Stein. And Joachim Stein had been a fawn in, in my claw for the entire weekend, because though he'd never been to North Wales, he assumed he knew every the best route way and up. He didn't have a map or a compass on his person, but he always had an opinion available. And he'd constantly been a pain in my backside, you know, trying to tell me different routes to go up mountains and what have you, and it was really getting quite weary. And on the Saturday, I remember that we did a wonderful climb on the, the, um, the, the, the uh, Snowdonia, which is um, doing the actual horseshoe of Snowdonia, in which there are five peaks. And the, the last two peaks are all part of it. So you've got the, the, um, the Snowdonia horseshoe. And um, we, we, we've been up the top of Snowdon, we've done the highest mountain and it had been a great climb and it had been a beautiful day and suddenly as often happens on Snowdon, um, the, the clouds have come, the clag had come in and we had to descend to the, to the next, next level, the next saddle in, in mist. And we got on the saddle and some of the, our party were getting tired by now. Um, and Joachim turned to me and says, Cole, we should get off the mountain um, as quickly as we can because people are getting tired. And I said, well, Joachim, it's okay. He says, We've got to go two more peaks. They're only small peaks. They're the smallest peaks in the, in the entire uh, horseshoe. It won't take us long to do them, but that's the safe way down. He says, no, Cole, we can go down here. He said, Joachim, you can't go down here. He says, come on, Cole, people are tired. We need to go down here. And I said to Joachim, he says, Joachim, says, you can't see because we're in mist. I said, but let me tell you something. He says, go down there. In about 1,000 feet, you're going to come to a sheer cliff. And it's going to drop you straight into Lin He says, you go down there, you're going to lose your life. But if you want to go down there, please, you know, go ahead. And I'm going to take the party over the last two peaks. And I did that. And when eventually we got down to the bottom, we got down to that very tarn that I was talking about. And the, and the mist cleared. And I pointed up to the... Um, Pointed up to the place that that, uh, Joachim Stein suggested we come down. I said, look, that's the way you were suggesting we should come down. And he just went quiet. You cannot follow if you're constantly getting in front. When you get in front, you just become an obstacle. You become a stumbling stone. You become a problem. And when we allow ourselves to get ahead of Jesus Christ, we get problems in our Christian life. And Jesus said to Peter, and he says to us, get behind me, Satan. You can't follow by being in front. And so we see the Christian shout, never, Lord. You can't say never, Lord, to Jesus. Then you see the Christian sentiment, and the Christian sentiment is verse 24. And Jesus, then following Peter's gaff, he turns to the disciples and says these words. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me what a slogan i wonder a how many advertising companies would choose that as a message to come to church on a, on a sunday whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me tough words shocking even not a way to gain followers or converts he was basically saying to the disciples listen my road is your road As my disciples, if you follow me, this is what it means to follow me and to do the will of God. It can be a tough road to take. It means to surrender and pick up your cross. It actually speaks of um, various things, and it speaks of the first thing, it's to let go of something. Jesus says this, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. It means letting go of self. But we no longer come first, but Jesus comes first. We don't seek to follow our wills, but God's will. Professor Richard France said this. He said, it means the Christian must renounce their right to life. The Christian must renounce their right to life. That's why I was getting on that bus in, in 2003, in Colchester, to go on the second Gulf War, because I was going the way I believe God had called me to go. I didn't want to go to uh, Kuwait and then into Iraq. I didn't want to go to war. But I was trying to be faithful to the call God had put on my life. It needs denying yourself, taking up your cross. It means going his way, not our way. And this is possibly the hardest part of being a Christian in the 21st century because our society is all about me. It's about pleasure. It's about finding your true you, being good to you, loving yourself. When Jesus says it's about denying yourself. And it's not an option, it's a must. And when he says it's about picking up something. He says in verse 24, they must take up their cross. Verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross. Now cross bearing or, or crosses were a very common sight in the Roman Empire. The Romans made a very public way of um, punishing rebels, a way of illustrating what would happen to those who re- rebelled against Rome. You know, if you were a Roman citizen, you wouldn't be crucified. Roman citizens weren't allowed to be crucified. If you c- c- committed a capital offence, you had the right to be beheaded not to be crucified. Crucifixion was reserved for rebels, for those who dared to rebel against Pax Ramona. And the most famous route into Rome was the Appian Way, and it's a lovely place. You ever go to Italy and you want to walk a wonderful way into Rome, I suggest picking up and, and starting your route into, into Italy, into Rome through the Appian Way, the Via Appa, Appia. It's the most ancient and significantly important ro- uh, road in the Republic. But this road could often be a very macabre road to walk down because it was a place in which the Romans often chose to put crucifixions victims because as the main road into Rome it was a great place to demonstrate the might of Rome and what would happen to those who dared to rebel against the Romans and unfortunately with a body that was left on a cross in that hot Italian climate and the rotten flesh, the smell of death, was horrendous. It could be a very unpleasant road to walk down. So much so that following the famous slave rebellion of AD 73, the rebellion led by the former gladiator Spartacus, a brilliant film. You've seen that. 6,000 slaves, 6,000 slaves were crucified and their bodies left to hang on the Appian Way, on the way into Rome. It covered a 200-kilometre stretch of that road. Body after body, cross after cross, 6,000 slaves, 200 kilometres of Rome, from Capia, where the rebellion began, all the way to Rome. So to pick up your cross was literally talking about a road of death, a way of death. Not necessarily physical death, But deaf to your will. Submitting to your will to the will of the Master. Accepting that the Messiah, the Christ, is the one who's in charge. Not you or me. It meant to pick up something, your cross. And it meant to follow someone. Because Jesus says in verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must follow me. Do you get the idea? You lay down something, your will. You pick up something, your cross. You follow someone, the Lord. That's what being a Christian is. Christianity is never static. It's a relationship. It is following someone. It is going their way along their road. And so Jesus says, and finally in verses 25 and 26, this, he says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. For whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul here is Jesus in Caesar I, Philippi surrounded by the niches and the ancient gods of Egypt the ancient gods of Greece the ancient gods of the Canaanites here he is in the grotto to pan a place where people came in their their hundreds to lay their tributes the, uh, uh, in this grotto to get the help of God and to earn their salvation And Jesus is saying you can't earn your salvation, the only way to be saved is to follow me and is to die to self, is to lay it all at my feet. See, if you want to find your soul, to keep your soul, you need to give yourself up. Happiness is not found in getting, this is where our modern society has got it so wrong. So many people are out there, even on today, Sundays, thrilled that the shops are opening up. They're out there, they're getting, they're accumulating, they are consuming, but are they happy? I suggest not. The whole basis of consumerism is based upon unhappiness. It's based upon the fact you can never be happy, you must have always the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and you consume it and you pass it on. You're never happy, consumerism is not the, the uh, philosophy of contentment. It would never work with contentment because you wouldn't be buying and, and, and wasting. Consumerism is based upon the idea that you're never happy and the, and the, um, the shops and, 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 and the businesses will tell you what you need to be happy until the next thing comes out. How many rich people take their riches with them? The Egyptians, the Romans used to put so many things into their graves. You know, um, the wonderful grave of um, King Tut, Tutankhamun. Of course, you, can, you know, that's going around the world even now as a display, and you can see the wonderful riches. But King Tut, this 19-year-old boy, son of Akhenaten, is dead. He doesn't get the benefit of them. You get the benefit by paying a few pounds and seeing his death mask and seeing his gold left behind. You can't take it with you material possessions are just that they're material and we are spiritual we have an eternal spirit and it's that spirit that Jesus is saying you've got to follow me with you've got to let die to self and come alive to me trying to follow materialism will not give you peace it will just consume you as you try and consume a man was once walking through a forest and he was pondering life and he walked and he pondered and he pondered and he walked. And he began to feel very close to God as he felt close to nature. So close to God, in fact, but he felt if he spoke out, God may actually hear him. And so eventually he said, God, are you listening? And God said, Yes, I am my son. I'm here. And the man stopped for a moment and he thought and pondered some more, walked and pondered. But he looked at the sky and said, God, what is a million years to you? And God replied, Well, my son, a second to me is like a million years to you. A second to me is like a million years is to you. As the man continued to walk and to ponder, and to walk and to ponder, and he says, God, what is a million pounds to you? And God said, My son, a penny is like a million pounds to you it means almost nothing to me it has even doesn't have a value it's so little the man continued his walk and pondered and walked and pondered and walked then he looked up to the sky and finally said god can i have a million pounds and god said sure my son just give me a second God wants to give us so much more than a million pounds. It's not about being a millionaire. It's about being an heir of Jesus Christ. It's about following Jesus Christ. It's about walking his way because that is the only way to true life. Jesus rose again from the dead. He now reigns on high. And he's coming back one day to take his own to be with him. And to reward us for the things we've done. People, remember this. Put down something. Deny yourself. Pick up something. Pick up your cross. And follow someone. Because by following that someone, he will lead you to the Father. He will lead you to truth. He will lead you to real life. Life that won't just last for 50 or 60, 70 years. But life that will last forever. Amen.